Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Melissa Terrace, who is Professor of Digital Cultural Heritage at the University of Edinburgh. And we're going to be talking about her new book, uh, Picture Book Professors, Academia and Children's Literature. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, I mean, this is a wonderful book. It's really interesting. Uh, It's a really great read. It obviously kind of speaks directly to a lot of uh, academic interests uh, in terms of what are academics kind of like in children's books and children's literature. Uh, but it does a lot more than that as well, which we'll try and sort of uh, talk through and talk around during the, the course of the conversation. But the place to start, I think, is where this book sort of fits in with your work as, oh, I guess, a kind of you know digital humanities uh, scholar. Um, and it'd be interesting to kind of situate this uh, and also the uh, companion book that you've published remarkably at the same time in terms of your work oh thank you um i think there's a interesting question as to why i kept going back to something that wasn't my day job so my day job is working with digitization mostly within the library and archive sector a bit of museums too so how you make copies of things and how you put them online and what that means and how it changes how we can interact with the past and how we can do data mining text mining data mining and i've been in that space for 20 years now and i facilitate a lot of large-scale projects which work in that space and about five or six years ago i was starting to feel that i wanted my own project Um, something that I could just do for intellectual fun. And I stumbled across this when I was reading picture books with my small children. So I had three children under the age of three at the time, and I suddenly found myself plunged into the world of children's literature, which I hadn't really paid much attention to before that. And I found a couple of professors in children's literature in quick succession. And I posted them on Twitter, and we had a bit of a laugh about it. And then it became something that I I started to do, was collect representations of academia and children's literature. I, at the time, was thinking about what it meant to be an academic in the current climate. And also I was going out for a professor myself. So what does it mean to be a professor? And I was thinking about what my children were understanding about what I did when I went away and what the books were showing them about what mummy did. Um, So there was a lot of personal stuff wrapped into that as well. But then it becomes something to search library catalogues for. So if I'm teaching how digital libraries work and I'm teaching um, digitization and digital libraries, I hadn't actually done a project myself where I had used digital libraries and digitized catalogues and archives to do a research project. I had talked about the act of digitization, but I hadn't gone, how do you find something in the library catalogue? So for me, it was a tour of the world's online library catalogues as to how you find information, how you can use it, and also the state of digitization of children's books. So there was many reasons why it was of interest to me. And it just, I mean, the, the balance there is really fascinating in terms of it's a book that could be as much about methods as about children's literature. 
Um, and it'd be great to hear a bit more about kind of why the methods were appropriate, not just, as you said, in terms of uh, using it in teaching and, and kind of practice, but also like how you built a kind of, you know, a corpus to sort of do the analysis on and, and stuff like that. Yeah, it, it turns out that, um, so I hadn't read much analysis of children's literature before I started this because I didn't realise I was writing a book, right? I was just having fun collecting representations of academics in children's literature and I stuck them on a tumbler and it became the kind of thing that I did, especially during boring staff meetings when I was bored and I could just go onto another library catalogue and have a, a grub about and see what I could find. But it became clear to me that this kind of corpus analysis is only something we can do in the current information climate because of the act of digitization and because of online digital catalogues. It's something that uh, we can do now about any topic. I chose professors in children's literature, but you could choose any other topic and you'd be able to gather a large corpus that you could not find before, even five years before. You could not have found all these examples because of the affordances of the digital. So the first thing to say is that the fact that the digital environment exists in the way it does, including social media and how people can chat to you about your work on social media and then come up with other examples for you, it's really facilitating a kind of different take on how to analyse a topic. And especially for children's literature, where most people, and I'm not slagging them off at all, but most people might write a whole monograph about one children's book. And I've written a monograph about 360 doing digital analysis of them so it's changing the scope of what we can do and what we can cover as well I mean was that what you felt was sort of missing from the literature that kind of like really broad sense of almost here's the beginning of the representation of academics through to to now you know was it that kind of thing of well you know, we... digital humanities can sort of fill this gap well, I, I carried it out in the way that I knew how and then when you go back and you go oh has anyone else written about this stuff um you realise that there's only a few academics that have been written about before who are in popular and enduring works like Degree Kirk from uh, C.S. Lewis um, books or uh, Professor Put Them All in Spirits from The Water Babies. And so we have some work that's been done on very famous academics from popular and enduring texts, but no one's trying to do this overview of academia and children's literature. And that surprises me, right, because nearly 50% of school leavers in the UK go on to university now. So it's a, it's a rite of passage, which is a popular rite of passage. And to not really see anyone looking at how that's represented in children's literature, which would have informed people's views of the outside world beyond school, kind of surprised me. So it turns out that I've stumbled across something that no one else has done before, and possibly at a scale that no one else thought was possible before. And I did it kind of without realising that, which if I had realised that at the start, I wouldn't have started, right? But when you built this corpus of 360-odd books, and then you go, okay, now it's time to analyse it, and you go, oh, you're not supposed to do it like this. So I did it in a way that I thought was natural. I mean, I was going to say the sort of depressing uh, initial um, kind of headline, uh, but sadly not kind of unexpected, is a particular stereotype of professors of, you know, being white men who are, you know, sort of old, have a particular kind of like, uh, I was going to say dress sense, but maybe lack of dress sense, you know, that they they have a kind of, you know, poshness about them. Um, Could you say a bit or maybe unpack that kind of stereotype 
which is at the sort of the core of, of the book. So about 50% of the academics, just over 300 academics, about 50% of them are like that. Old white men called Professor Something Dumb, dumb with um, sticky out hair like Einstein. Most of them scientists. Uh, most of them baffled or ineffectual and then after the second world war they become evil and uh, uh, want to blow up the world so that's tapping into changes in society and and their response to the nuclear bomb and the fear of technology which increases after the second world war Um, so there are societal responses to that and it is quite depressing um, when you read book after book after book about what a professor is like and then your own child says to you, you can't be a professor, mummy, you're not a white man, an old white man in a white coat. Um, and that's what we're saying that um, professors are. And we're also saying their behaviour is generally ineffectual and baffled or evil and not to be trusted. Sometimes that's slapstick and it's very funny. We have to acknowledge that children's books can be hilarious. Um, and there is a slapstick element about that. But um, it is a problematic representation if we think about who is getting agency to be an expert in children's literature, and it's a particular slice of society. I mean, is that consistent uh, since the sort of the 19th century? I mean, I, I picked out a couple of examples when I was reading it that sort of stood out. The Parents' Best Gift, uh, Jack Dorf from the 60s, um, Marley and Mouse, which weirdly was... I think written by a kind of Hollywood superstar uh, from the noughties. Um, and has, has there been a kind of, I guess, a kind of consistency with this problematic representation? I think it's the lazy stereotype which people fall back on. So the lazy stereotype now is, and I went to see a film at the weekend with my kids. I went to see um, Hotel Transylvania 3 summer vacation and uh, there's a mad professor in that that right? sounds terrible yeah in the, in the first minute there's a, it's a, the plot about a mad professor who's gonna um, blow them all up and you're like oh here we go and it, it can now be the stereotype that's just dropped into stories without any backstory or, or need for explanation because everyone understands that's what a professor is and the best books that are mentioned, and the, one of them, Mahalia Mouse, that you mentioned, are ones which actually recognise that stereotype and play with it. So Mahalia Mouse was written to kind of turn that on its head, and it is about a female mouse who goes to Harvard and excels, and it's about she works hard, she's smart, she gets a chance, and it, yay! And it was it was um, written for a commencement ceremony, so it was the actor whose name I've forgotten now because I'm talking to you, of course, um, has, uh, he goes to the commencement ceremony and he reads out this poem about what would it like to be a mouse who was a genius who goes to Harvard and how wonderful it is. And in the background, they have all these wonderful depictions about diversity and you have black students and, and things which just don't appear in other books, right? So that's the type of book which is thought about the, the stereotypes which are being put across to children and wants to do something about it. And he talks about in an interview about how he wanted to make a positive representation of university for children because they don't really exist. But the rest of them, um, or most of them, are not this positive representation. They're a very negative representation of universities. And they're not about the buildings, they're not about the institutions, they're not about the places. It's all about the people. And the people are these old white men who are baffled and you can laugh at them or mad and destructive. Yeah, I, I think sort of later on, um, you, you kind of unpack 
three stereotypes. But but before that, it'd be interesting to know how this differs, I guess, kind of around age groups. Um, I mean, we've mentioned, you know, how, how things have changed over time, but, you know, is this the case sort of, I guess, for everybody? Because, you know, we, we say sort of children's literature, but obviously there's, you know, uh, lots of different things going on when we're talking about children's literature, as much as there is with, with adult literature, actually. Um, yeah, so I stopped just when the young adult fiction kicks in. So I, I used illustrations as the way to kind of cut that off. And also, if you're looking at illustrations, I was looking at illustrated academics, it gives you much more information to, to base your analysis on rather than just a text. Um, and it also cuts down the size of the corpus, so it's quite manageable. Um, but that means most of the books are written for kids who are under the age of 10, and the majority of them are for kids who are between 3 and 7. So that's um, the kind of books I was concentrating on. I did do a little bit of work about young adult fiction. I haven't written that up in the book, but started to look at representations of universities and older fiction, and it is much more nuanced what is being said there. It becomes much more about the university as a place of learning and the place where you can go to change yourself and to change your life. So I think there is a follow-on study to this to be done about that. So that's more than looking at the audience who are reading themselves, so self-guided readers age of 12, 13, 14, who are making decisions about their own lives and thinking about what it would mean to, to go to university and what subjects they should choose and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for the earlier books that we're looking at, um, there is something about going back to these fundamental tropes it's almost like uh, there is the Jungian trope of the wise old man, but it's turned on its head. It's kind of like the nonsense version of that. And much in the way that Edward Lear's nonsense poetry works, this kind of madcap professor functions in a way which upsets social norms. And it's a way of playing around with what an adult is and what experts are and who you should believe. And so there's interesting things which can be quite funny going on too. But the overall assumption and the overall picture is one which is not positive to universities and it's not inclusive and it's certainly not diverse when it comes to who gets to have intellectual agency. Yeah, I mean, even where, as you note, with the kind of Victorian representations, these are effectively kind of you know, uh, pretty strict looking, you know, schoolmasterly kind, kind of guys, they are still within that um, that quite narrow sort of range of, of representations, which later on in the book you relate to three sort of ideal types. I mean, which are partially kind of quite funny, uh, but also extend this analysis of how how problematic they are. So we've got a kind of you know kindly teacher, uh, what you call the baffled goon, <laughs> which I quite liked, and then the evil madman. Uh, and it'd be great to hear a bit more about those three, and, and I guess actually how you know in some ways how different they are from each other uh because obviously within the narrow set of stereotypical you know crazy hair badly dressed posh white guy you know there are still nuances going on yeah so the the teacher we take the pedagogue first the kind of kindly teacher is most usually quite a hollow vehicle not very well formed it's just oh here comes the professor they will now explain how the combustion engine works and it's a kind of, oh, this is a person who must know how technology, mostly science, works and explains a concept in a way which is translating it for the young audience. 
So that in itself is fine, but um, it's fairly hollow and these people don't have backstories most of the time. So then we move on to the most common representations, which are the baffled goons. And isn't it funny that the professor did something that didn't work? And these stories, like, there's over and over and over again, stories and poems that it's all set up. Here comes the professor. They're trying to do something. Oh, it didn't work. Ha, 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 Over and over again, right from 1870 to the modern day. So it's not a new thing. And that's by far the most dominant grouping within the corpus. And then after the Second World War, you get this, the professor who is evil and the professor who wants to destroy things. Um, and it kind of surprised me when I when I put two and two together that that's where it comes in. Before that, professors could be mad and they could be baffled, but they weren't dangerous. And it's only from the late 1940s onwards that they become actively dangerous to society in children's literature. And it's about the public distrust of science and we've had enough of experts and tropes which are are current in our society but have been happening for hundreds of years, right? So this is a response to various issues in society which are not new and we're only seeing them in children's literature now because children's literature only really started in 1870, 1880s. So we're seeing this as their current response to that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I was particularly fascinated actually by the, the end of that chapter which, you know, really brings in that sense of um, the relationship between these books and popular culture, but not just as a, you know, mad professors appear because of post-war distrust of science, but actually, you know, a much kind of longer term um, interaction between popular questions about academics and universities and their role and then representations as well, uh, which which I thought was a kind of particularly interesting, almost sort of concluding comment um, on the book. But I guess that the kind of the key sort of um, question about the representations you've identified is their distance from the kind of the real world of the university. Um, and I suppose one part of that is, so how are they different to how universities are, are represented now? And what, I suppose, what optimism do you have that they might change or, or be challenged in, in children's literature? So there's a very complicated relationship between these representations and the actual academy. And all the way through the book, I'm careful to refer the statistics which come out of the corpus to statistics I could find about the constituency of the actual academy. So if we look at race, for example, uh, across Europe, about 20% of professors are women. So we have an issue in the academy with diversity. I think in Scotland there's one black professor. So um, there are issues about race in the academy. There are issues about privilege in the academy. In Oxford this year, only 4% of new intake, new undergraduates came from disadvantaged households. So there's a certain type of person gets to go to the good universities and gets to proceed and can afford to proceed. So universities themselves have huge issues about diversity, about class, about race, about gender, never mind things like disability or different sexuality. You know, they're, they're, um, it's a very complex environment which is male-dominated and has very 
tough patriarchal structures which reward patriarchal behaviour. That's the university industry as it stands. And there's been quite a lot of studies about that which show how problematic they are. So I found the same stuff kind of emerging through children's literature, which is quite depressing, really. But then you realise that what the children's literature books are doing is they're holding a mirror up to the current university structures and the past university structures. They're holding a mirror up to it. They are then mocking what they see, but they're simultaneously reinforcing what they see to the people who are reading them. So it's all right to laugh at these things and laugh at universities, but then if you're only showing these certain representations, you're still, you're still reinforcing that these biases exist. So it's a really complicated relationship that exists there. And I don't think we can really expect children's literature to be showing, especially not in the 1950s or the 1900s, we, we shouldn't really have been expecting to see lots of women professors because there were none, right? So there were none in the UK in 1900. So why would we expect a children's book to have one? Because it seemed impossible at that time. Women didn't even have the vote, you know? Um, so it's situating it in the wider climate, but also situating it in a university system, which is not a fair and ecosystem. We don't work in a world which has equality. Are you sort of hopeful that things will change? You know, I mean, we, we could be flippant and say, you know, we're going to see lots of children's books that are about long, tedious administrative meetings that, you know, re- represent <laughs> the reality of the modern world. In which people are doing their literature research for the books that no one asked yeah, them to write. Yeah, you know, yeah. The rogue uh, professor is like do, doing her research during the committee. Um, or are we likely to see the kind of like a stickiness for this uh, particular kind of character, whether he's a teacher, a goon or a madman? So I think that I'm not asking for a massive sea change or burn everything down. But what I am asking for is a reconsideration of the basic biases within children's literature. It doesn't matter in some ways that I chose universities to look at. I could have looked at any profession in children's literature, doctors or farmers or, um, you know, soldiers. All of these show huge biases towards men in children's literature and there's study after study after study which has counted different things in children's literature about how women are disenfranchised in children's books right so i chose professors and it shows that so we have to look at what we can be doing to change that about and what we're looking for are female characters or black characters who do the kind of things that the white men do without it being a big deal without them being treated differently we're looking for the odd person in a wheelchair in the background but as, an, as a norm because lots of people in society have disabilities and wouldn't it be nice for that just to be shown in children's literature? And I think the publishing industry is complicit in the fact that it hasn't promoted diversity and we see these studies have been coming out for 40 years now saying, oi, where are the diverse books? And the publishing industry go, well, no one will buy them. And so we won't make them. And I think we're at a moment now with some of the literature which is coming out that we have new audiences who are asking for diverse books. And we have a, there's a couple of um, books which have sold very, very well in that space. And publishers are starting to realise that if they take this seriously, it will both um, increase their profits because people will buy these things, but also it will make the audiences happier because the audiences are being more critical. The final thing is, 
this wonderful anthology that accompanies uh, the might be called the kind of a, the analysis book. Uh, and I'm quite interested to conclude by by talking about that. I mean, what what was the sort of uh, the sense of uh, you just you weren't busy enough, and you thought maybe I should do an anthology, or actually was it quite straightforward after you built the corpus to kind of uh, create this um, wonderful actually resource for people who've been reading uh, reading the book itself. So that came out when, uh, or that came up as an idea when I, I gave the manuscript draft to a good colleague of mine who's a librarian and she read it through for me and especially I wanted her to double check some of the stuff I'd said about libraries and she kind of pointed out that I had found 50 things which were out of copyright and I had been doing some work about copyright exceptions and how copyright affects digitization and how copyright affects what you can share and the whole hole in the 20th century about how you can't digitize and share stuff and just in case you might get sued and the often work problem, we call it, where you can't identify who owns copyright and things. And she said to me, well, but you found all the stuff which is out of copyright and it's now in the public domain and you could take it and make it available. A lot of the stuff's very rare. It only exists in uh, print books, which you have to either get from like either one or two libraries in the UK or as I normally did, like buy it off Abe so that you could, or eBay so you could have a copy yourself. Um, and you could put it together as an anthology. And the idea was first that we would then provide access to a lot of the stories which are mentioned in the book, which most people wouldn't be able to get access to, right? So it's almost like an open science version for the humanities, where you show you're working out by providing the primary resources which you based your analysis on. So I chose 26 out of um, the 50 or so which were pre-1920s, so they were out of copyright and I could do what I liked with them. And then I set about getting the text and the images, some of which I had to license, some of which I had to pay for access, but in the most part it was from um, freely available resources. And then I put them together into this anthology which sits beside the monograph because you can then go and look at these short stories in more detail and read them to your children if you should so wish. Um, and that was a lot of fun, and I learned a lot about licensing and copyright and how much time it takes to do an anthology. I just thought I would bang this thing together, you know? Uh, yeah, it turns out that anthologizing is uh, it's, yeah, it's a slow process. Yeah, famous <laughs> last Having done one last year, famous last words, you can just put it together and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, it, it took a long time. And then... Um, and then I kind of, I said to, we'd had a chat with Cambridge University Press about this and they they were going to host it and then it became clear that they didn't realise that I'd actually written another book. And now we managed, uh, I managed to approach Finch and Press where the, the National Centre for Children's Literature Studies is and they put out books and so they agreed to put out the monograph as part of their books and it's the first open access book that they're putting out actually. Um, so that's been fun exploring what open access means for a small press for them too. And that's been a, a very hands-on that and, and good fun. Um, and so I feel like for me, this is exploring also what open access means and how you can deal with that in a way which is conducive to uh, doing good work in the humanities. There's a lot of, a lot of um, animosity towards open access in the humanities. Like, why would you do that, you know? 
And so this is playing with open access and showing what you can do. I mean, hopefully people read it and, you know, take, maybe not take advantage, but, you know, sort of avail themselves of both, you know, um, the kind of the book itself uh, as open access, but also that set of resources too. Um, and I think showing your work in is, a, is a kind of fascinating comment on, on how to think about that, actually. And, you know, people can kind of dive into to some of those case studies, some of those examples in, in the anthology. Obviously, you know, this has been an incredible amount of work and we shouldn't sort of underestimate that. But both of them are, you know, kind of out in the wild now. And I guess, is it a question of sort of following up with a possible young adult representation of, of professors or are you moving on to something sort of completely different? I had thought that I was going to do the the young lads at fiction one, and I in the book I do call dibs on that. So um, <laughs> it's it's mine if I want to do it. Um, we'll see. I'm working on my day job at the moment, and uh, I have got another three books that need to be finished, which are actually about what I'm doing. One on uh, legal deposit libraries, one on it's a the Chinese translation of one of my textbooks and another anthology which I'm putting together at the moment, which again is playing with this idea of digitisation of out-of-copyright materials. Um, so it's, I'm giving myself a break, I'm going to see how this goes, but then I, I might come back to it. It's been so much fun to do this. And this was, it was my secret squirrel project for a long time, right? This was the thing I did to keep myself sane, almost, like looking at representations of mad academics was the thing which was keeping my head happy. And there's something weird in there when you look at that too closely. Um, but it was a it was great to 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 take the time to have an idea which I could just walk through, and that's so rare at the moment in academia. Most people don't get the time to pause and just go right. I'm going to do this for fun because intellectually this is challenging, and intellectually it is fun. And it's, I've learned through this project that I need to have that side project that I work on maybe an hour a week, maybe two hours a week. But it's the thing that keeps me, you know, when you're standing at the bus stop, like looking into the space going, ah, and you're thinking something through, something that's creative. And there's a lot of creativity about this project, I think. Something which um, kind of fires you up to to dig and to research and to go back. And I've, I've fallen back in love with the research process through doing this. So uh, I hope that whatever I tackle next, it will it will be similarly rewarding. <laughs>